HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Welcome, everybody, to Heritage Radio Network on Tour. I'm Eli Sussman. I'm so excited to kick off our broadcasting here from Charleston Wine and Food. We're in the studio. We want to thank the Julia Child Foundation for making our coverage possible and to Charleston Wine and Food Festival for having Heritage Radio Network down here for the fifth year in a row. I'm so excited to be joined by Kaylee Laird as my first guest and as the first guest on Heritage Radio Network on the road down here in Charleston. Welcome. Thank you. Thanks for being here and speaking with us. So you're the pastry chef of Rhubarb, The Rue, and Benny on Eagle in Asheville, North Carolina. You're originally from New York, so all right, we'll talk a little bit about New York since we're down here from Brooklyn. And you really just kind of grew up cooking, right? Like as a young kid, you were in the kitchen with your mom, and then you went on to work um, to study at the Culinary Institute of America. You went to Hyde Park. And from there, you worked at Bouchon Bakery, where you won the Core Award in honor bestowed upon the individual that best displays the core values of the Thomas Keller Restaurant Group. You worked at Michelin Starred Ubuntu in Napa. You were the pastry chef at the Caneros Inn, also in Napa. I mean, you've got a very long career in a very short period of time. Like, you've basically just been working nonstop, right? So we've got a lot to cover. We've got um, not a ton of time, so I want to jump right into it. Let's talk about you growing up in New York, um, maybe learning from your mom how to bake, and just how you got excited about food in the beginning. Well, me cooking was actually an answer to my family not being able to cook. Um, But when I was really little, I was super rambunctious, and Christmas would come around, and it was a big deal, and my mom would give me an early Christmas present. So to keep me occupied so I would stop asking every five minutes to open presents, she got me into baking Christmas cookies, because we did it for the whole family. So it was a process, and I eventually became super obsessed with it and wouldn't even let her touch them. Started watching the Food Network, learned how to decorate, tried to do more intricate things, and then just went crazy from there to the point they didn't have to cook dinner anymore because I was, I was on it. From a young age, were you a anti-school? Were you, like, causing trouble? Were you not in the classroom? Were you just, like, head down baking, or were you good at school and enjoyed it, and baking was more of, like, a hobby that you got into as a young kid? Oh, I was such a perfect little student and brown noser. Um, I was in, like, had all the teachers in my pocket. Because you baked them cookies, and you brought them cookies? Uh, I just, you know, schmoozed my way around Mm -hmm. um, that, but I found a way while I was in high school to actually work as a pastry chef in a restaurant, 
using that, getting good grades, and they created a program so that I could get credits to go do that and legally not be in school and go to work. Was there any pressure from your family to go to a more traditional university and not go to Hyde Park and, and study baking, or did you have the opportunity to make that decision for yourself? I have a super supportive family. They've never tried to get me to do or be anything that they that I didn't want to be. They've mm -hmm. never put their thoughts or beliefs on me in any form. So they're very supportive. Let me do whatever I wanted. Made me pay for it myself. Um, but I got to do whatever I wanted. So some people, they go to a culinary school and they talk endlessly about how it's a formative experience and how they learned a huge amount. For you, was it what you hoped it would be or, you know, was it something else? Was it a letdown or did you not feel like it really contributed to your growth in the same way that just being in a restaurant did? For me, it was very much what you put into it is what you get out of it. I didn't party. I didn't go crazy. And I didn't work while I was at CIA. I spent my time studying and focusing on school. So I felt like I got a lot out of it, but not everyone has the same experience. Um, in my opinion, though, if you're you know, trying to, you don't have the money for culinary school, you can find a great restaurant that can do the same things for you and a good mentor that will also teach you the same things you'll learn in school. Is that something that now that you're in a leadership position excites you that you have people coming through the door and they're eager to learn? Maybe they don't have culinary training and now you're really in a position to uh, lend all your expectations expertise to building a, a new crop of young chefs that are entering your kitchens? Yes, definitely. I'm, for me, to be a chef means that you are in, trying to create people that will someday be better than you. If you're just going to make people that aren't I as good as you yeah. or um, won't get there, like, what's the point? And you shouldn't be afraid to have someone who's younger than you, someone you taught, end up doing better things than you. That's how we create growth in the industry. Um, and it is our job to take people that maybe don't want to be an executive chef, but really want to be in the industry. Like, you don't need to go to school. Work your, get paid to learn. Work your way up. Do it the hard way. And you'll, it's kind of more of a wrenching experience. I want you to tell a little bit about Frank Mirabel and how he contributed to your life and, and early growth as someone who was interested in food and starting on your culinary career. Uh, Chef Frank um, and I, we still have a very close relationship. I talk to him when I find a minute. Um, he worked in a lot of big name places and w took me in and took a risk on me when I was really young. Uh, just at a golf club in upstate New York where I'm from, that's the best food that they have. And he was doing food that still now is not really accepted where we're from. Um, I kind of had an attitude because I knew how capable he was and he was choosing to be in this little bodunk town and wasting his talent, in my opinion. And he, we had a time where we were both kind of sitting in his office in tears because I was being a little shithead and didn't really understand what's going on. And he lectured me about priorities and making choices that you'll have to make someday. Um, and he taught me a lot as a human and as a chef, and he is the reason why I had the opportunity to get to go out to Napa, because um, he looked at me one day and said, you're going to be great someday, but it's not here, so what do you need and what can I do for you? And still to this day, he's the type of person that puts himself out there for his employees that need that little extra push. So he he's the one that really kind of gave you that inspiration, that motivation to go and push yourself and expand your culinary repertoire. And so you go to Napa, which is still really a Mecca, but when you were there was sort of the epicenter of fine dining, still 
is, although it's it's spread out, and mm -hmm. obviously places like Charleston and Asheville are getting a lot more credit for developing talent. But when you were there, um, were you at all intimidated to step into that fine dining environment coming from upstate New York and entering into you know these Thomas Keller-led kitchens? Uh, I was not intimidated at all. I just didn't want to let his name down. I've kind of always been an overly confident person, so I knew what I wanted to do, and I just went for it, and I made sure not to hurt his name and to make him proud in the process. And so how did that work? You get out to Napa, and, you know, you, you, you get into the kitchen, and did you just work your ass off and work your way up? Did you jump around from restaurant to restaurant? How did you, who did you want to learn from, and what kind of skills beyond just like honing your technique? What were you looking to get from that experience out in Napa? I just wanted to get to where I had this goal in my mind, which I still can't, couldn't decipher at the time what it was, but I wanted to be the best that I could be. Um, I worked my way through Bouchon very fast and I redid all the manuals for every station on the bake while I was there in under a year. And so I rose to a point where it was either give me a raise and give me more of a title or I'm out of here. And that's what it came down to. So then I started jumping to places where I looked at the bigger picture and I worked at fatted calf charcuterie so I could get customer service experience and I could learn about the meat side. I worked at Morimoto so I could see different styles of desserts and ultimately got a little lucky and fell in the hands of Aaron London at Ubuntu for its final year. Um, and there is where I didn't really know what I wanted to be, and Aaron helped me figure that out. And what was that? What did you figure out what you wanted um, to be? Aaron was a bit of a renegade chef himself, uh, doing crazy food, using no-waste um, kitchen practices, and kind of didn't set limits. So it was completely different from working for Thomas Keller, where it was very classic French and beautiful, and I needed that to rehone what I learned in school. But then I was taught how to take those concepts and use it, but also throw it away at the same time and create your own path. Um, I started playing with ingredients that I, I've never questioned what was able to be used in a dessert, um, but this really just, there was no limit to what I was allowed to do and what I was allowed to use. Was there any moment at, at one of these restaurants where you conceptualized and executed a dessert that when you look back, when you were at your CIA days, it was something that was so far out there that like, you felt like it was sort of a, a real aha moment where you'd turn the corner and your horizons had been expanded so dramatically? Um, it wasn't a dessert. It was actually a savory dish that I did avocado ice cream on when I was at Aveline. And it's funny because when I was in culinary school years before and I made avocado ice cream, everybody looked at me and was just like, what are you thinking? That's disgusting. Then it became the most popular dish in the restaurant. I got a lot of press for it. And even now everyone's just like, oh, avocado and everything. It's amazing. Is, is that restaurant still open? No, it's okay. not. I left when they decided to rebrand re it and train. And, and so what brought you back uh, to the other side of the country? Now you're living right outside of Asheville and you're working at several spots um, in that city. So did you move directly to Asheville? Were there stops along the way? So I grew up vacationing uh, in the Carolinas. And when I was done in San Francisco, I just needed a change and I wanted something a little bit more comfort, comforting and I wanted, I wanted to enjoy my life on a different level. Um, I was on the clock 24 seven working at Aveline and I wore myself out. Um, so I kind of did a quick, sh quick search, rhubarb came up, 
got a hold of John. Just so happened that he needed a pastry chef at the time. On my way across country, I stopped in, staged with him for a little bit, went home to New York to take a little bit of a breather, um, and ultimately came back down, and I haven't left since. So now we're in Asheville, and we're talking about all these spots that you're you're really running the show at a, a lot of places it's daunting to be in a leadership position in one spot you have to cover a lot of ground so talk a little bit about the the places um if there's big differences between them if you can talk a little bit about that and then also uh how do you manage your time when you have a lot really going on on your plate um so what i do is not only just three establishments, but I also have private events and weddings. And my biggest job um, that I created there is wholesale accounts. I actually supply to a lot of coffee shops and other restaurants in town. Um, My mornings start very early. I actually run my system at 24-7. So I start at 3 a.m. and it trickles down from there when my staff comes in all the way to an overnight baker. Um, It's pretty tightly scheduled. 3 a.m., to six, get all the product out and on the road to our delivery driver. And that includes um, Benny on Eagle is treated as one of my wholesale accounts because it is our our restaurant, but also it's completely separate. It's its own identity. Mm -hmm. So that gets delivered to rhubarb and the Rue are super easy. Walk it across the hall, walk it down the stairs. Um, And then from there, it's just kind of a chaotic organization of of a dance to get everything going because my bake shop is also our private event space where weddings take place and big parties take place. Do you do the 3am start time out of necessity or because you want to? I would think at this point you'd be able to make your own schedule and maybe show up at 6 or 7am if you you really wanted to. So you must (laughs) either be like a glutton for punishment or you must like being there at 3 a.m. It's it's painful in all the best ways. Um, I it's kind of necessity and also I make that choice. So I can fluctuate my schedule very easily. I'm not a human that really likes to sleep that much. Mm -hmm. And it's a hard schedule to run, so it's very hard to find staff that want to maintain that. Um, We are also so busy, and we do everything by hand from scratch. So it takes quite a process that I am right now the most skilled person to ensure that every account gets what they need. I do have a team with me. It's about two or three other people that help me open in the morning. And then um, all together, I usually run a team of closer to 12 because I need a pastry plater at Rhubarb. I need um, two bread bakers minimum. I need production people. Um, So it just makes the most sense for me to be the predominant person in that role. It sounds like you're into logistics and planning. And as everybody knows, baking is about specifics and, well, there's tinkering obviously, and there's R&D, but you need things to be replicated and they really need to be perfect, right? So um, what type of uh, SOPs do you have and and how much do you like digging into that type of world of of just achieving or hoping to obtain that level of perfection where like every single thing that leaves the kitchen is as if you touched it. And as we know, based on everything you have going on, it's impossible. It is impossible. And it's an ever-changing, growing system for me. Um, I work with my team and we talk about it and we make adjustments as we go because we don't use a lot of equipment to get that level of perfection that I would really want isn't going to happen. So it takes me actually accepting as a human that my staff are all human and that they, we need to take time, you know, bread's different every day, teaching them how to work with it. Um, and I'm constantly changing 
from, all right, we are going to tweak this recipe right now because the weather's changed and it's not working the way it was last year at this time and we don't know why. Or one of my products, um, Nut Butters, now contains a little bit more oil than it did before, so we need to adjust constantly. Are you into the business side? Whole, running wholesale is such a different animal than a, than a restaurant. Like, it's, yes, there are similar elements, but... but it's really more of a consumer packaged good than it is closer to service of plating a dish and it hits a table and someone eats it, right? So mm -hmm. there's all these different aspects to learn. I assume that you've been learning that along the way, but is it something that really interests you or is it just part of the job that, that, that you have to kind of deal with as being head of all the baking and production? Uh, so a little thing a lot of people don't know because they see me as a chef and I have to say, well, I'm a businesswoman first and a chef second. I have a business degree. I started very young um, learning from my mom, who's an accountant and has run businesses her whole life, um, that side of it. I just didn't want to sit behind a desk. So I found a business that allowed me to be on my feet and run around and really be engaged the whole time. Um, so I am very deep into the business side. Wholesale is something, uh, when I originally sat down with John, it wasn't really something that was on his mind. Uh, bakery was new for him, and he really wanted... He had an idea of what he wanted, but we didn't know how to get there. And wholesale was something I brought to the table, and it's been my baby ever since. And it is the, the main factor that has kept us moving for the last four years. I actually think the what people don't know, and obviously you know this because you have a business degree, but it's a much more difficult aspect of the entire operation is to manage all the back end and all the moving pieces. Really bringing in the product and making the food is a small portion of what it takes to operate a successful restaurant. So um, all that, that back-end stuff, do you have um, people that are on your baking team that are you also trying to cultivate them from a creative standpoint, but also, you know, passing down all this business insight that you have and, like, opening up the books to them a little bit or explaining to them things beyond just food costing so that they see what is happening behind the scenes? Yes, I try to be very transparent with all my staff. I let them know what's going on. I let them know what we're charging for things, what it costs, what we retail, down to you know the numbers that the Rue did that day or what we're making on wholesale weekly and how that affects the business. Um, I do have some younger staff that we're, I'm really trying to hone to not only be a great cook and chef, but to also understand how to deal with people, how to, you know, you have to talk to our wholesale clients in a certain way to manage expectations. You, you can't just brush them off because you want to be a line cook. You need to work through that and understanding the money and what goes into it. Just like every time I say, can I get a new scale because I dropped this one and it broke, what that does to our business. Mm -hmm. And let's talk about staff and motivation and uh, retention. Really sort of industry-wide problems. I, I don't know Asheville really that well. Maybe everyone there is super happy and no one leaves. But uh, I assume that you face all the same problems that everyone in the industry does, which is um, just trying to cultivate people that show up on time, work hard, and give them uh, a positive, safe workspace where they can thrive and grow, right? So how do you accomplish that since you're a, a leader in the kitchen? And um, for those listening that, that are either in a leadership position or, or soon to be in that position, what kind of advice can you give to them about them running their own spots? Well, you need to remember that 
they're just because you can do things a certain way doesn't affect you that way. They are people and everyone is different and you need to actually take the time to get to know them and be open to listening to them. I tried, you know, I don't always have staff that want to speak to me. We do definitely have people that get very upset, don't want to talk about it and they're out the door and there's nothing you can do about it. But I try to take the moment to pay attention to them as people. So like you're a little off today. What's going on? Do you want to talk about it? It could be personal it could be at work but if it's at work like I can help fix that so let's talk about it I try to keep them engaged and have an opinion and thought on the whole process because it I can't do this without them um we got lucky for a while where in pastry at least at rhubarb we had years of very little turnover and then it was kind of an abrupt I can't do this anymore and part of it for us is the hours and the physicality of doing everything by hand so now I'm more open to listening to them say, you know, can I have three days off in a row and then I'll work these four days or um, can we do this with my schedule because I just need the break. You need to be open to don't think, don't always take it as it's an employee with a sense of entitlement and doesn't want to do this. They, they're entitled to having a healthy, happy life too and you want that or else your product will suffer, you will suffer. Um, so I just try to actually talk to my staff on a level and let them know that like I'm not going to be upset if you want to look for a different job we can talk about it if you need that kind of help just being there for them a business is a business but you need to be a human while doing that we're going to close by talking about something that is super interesting to me uh which is dietary restrictions and kind of cooking with constraints um I have an intolerance to dairy I have a restaurant we serve dairy and I end up having to eat it you also um have certain things that, you know, don't agree with you. And uh, you obviously have to do a lot of testing and eating. So mm-hmm. um, how does that affect your life? Is it exciting kind of to have constraints sometimes that maybe forces you to be more creative or do you hate it and wish it wasn't the case? Uh, there are times that I do look at product we're making and I wish that I could just eat a loaf of bread and really enjoy it. Um, but it doesn't really bother me. Um, on the other end of it, it has made me a better chef. Um, I understand and respect the restrictions. And on top of that, because that's how I eat, you know that those products that I'm making are the best that I can I can get for that. Like I make a gluten-free brioche that eats like a normal bread to the point where you would never miss it because that's important to me. And I know it's important to people that also have those restrictions. Um, it doesn't affect me that much. On a daily, I don't at this point, I don't need to taste that much unless there's a big mix-up. Um, but there are other parts to it where, like, not only do I not like the feeling of flour on my hands, but it will ruin my hands in the winters. My hand, like, my skin doesn't react the way that it should. Kaylee, thank you so much for being here. I wish we had a little bit more time, but it was wonderful to speak with you and hear about everything that you're doing down in Asheville. There's a lot going on. For folks listening out there, if you're traveling down to Asheville, you live there, you can go visit her at the Rhubarb, the Rue, Benny on Eagle. Uh, I assume that there's a website that houses all those restaurants together. Is there a hospitality website that people can go to and check um, out? RhubarbAsheville.com, and you can be linked to all the rest of them through that. Thanks very much, Chef. Uh, Good luck with your events down here. Thanks for sitting in with us on Heritage Radio Network. And uh, hopefully we'll come see you down in Asheville sometime. Please do. Thanks.
everybody. Thanks so much for listening to our first episode down here, Heritage Radio Network on tour. I'm Eli Sussman, host of The Line. We're going to be back in about five minutes with plenty of content. Stick around. Thanks again to the Julia Child Foundation for making our coverage possible. Stay tuned for more from Charleston. This program is powered by Simplecast. Simplecast. 